Next question. With the coming crisis and uh, what has been uh, shared here uh, about the concept of uh, achieving perfection and not there's not that much time left, how do you achieve that and balance have a balance in your life so that you don't come away scared or overwhelmed? It says it seems impossible. You can answer whenever you're ready. <laughs> I believe that the answer is very clear in 1 John chapter 4 that God wants first to recognize us to recognize our sense of need. Man by our very nature, human tendency is to believe that we can do things by ourselves. And so God allows an understanding of a crisis, whether it's a crisis that happens in our health or in our family, he wants to strip us of self-confidence. No one can be ready to meet Jesus that has self-confidence. Our confidence must only be in Christ. So he allows a crisis to be revealed that shows us that it's not safe to trust in ourselves. The same thing that will give us power to get victory is the same thing that will remove fear. In 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says, beginning in verse 17, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness, that's a lack of fear, in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. Then the next verse says, there is no fear in love. And so this is clear that the Bible says that if a man has love in his heart for the master, then he does not have fear. If a man's afraid, it's an evidence that he's lacking love. And so the thing that would stop us from being overwhelmed is in the midst of this to understand the love of Jesus. Where's that love revealed? Where's the greatest place that the love of Jesus has been revealed? Now, someone would say Calvary. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that when you study the Bible, we're actually told in the Pen of Inspiration, Great Controversy 48, uh, 49, it says that the cross, that the clear revelation of the love of Christ is actually given in the most holy place. You ever read a statement that says that in the last generation, we will see the full and final display of the love of God? And so the full display, the final display of the love of God is still in the future. Uh, we're actually going to see a greater revelation. When you look at the sanctuary, from the outer court to the holy place to the most holy place, we're looking more at the love of Jesus. Is there love at the cross? Yes. Is there more love in the, uh, in the holy place? You remember when the Bible says, who's going to forgive most? Who's going to love most? The one who was forgiven most. That happens in the holy place. So that love increases more and more until the perfect day, Proverbs 4, verse 18. So I believe that if we see that love from the outer court and into the most holy place, that is perfect love. You know, the Bible speaks of Alpha and the Omega. We must understand that love as is displayed in the beginning and at the end. So if we have that love, it would destroy fear and it would show us how to practice the principles that God has given us in everyday life. Um, <clears throat> there's a beautiful quotation stated by Sister White in Life Sketches 196 where she says, in reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God. As I see what the Lord has wrought, 
I'm filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and in his teach and his teaching in our past history. When we study the movements of God from our past history all the way up to the point where Sister White says she was reviewing it, she sees that love that was demonstrated, that faithfulness of our great leader. And he is still offering and willing to give that love and that faithfulness to each and every one of us. And as long as we hold on to that and not forget our past history and not forget the way God has led us, then we have nothing to fear because he has already promised victory as we abide in him. I like the point that Pastor Davis brought out in Great Controversy 489. It actually said, it, she starts to talk about the cross, but then she transitions into the most holy place. And the words that she uses is she says, there. Now, when she's talking about the most holy place, that was the last topic that she was talking about. She says, there, in the most holy place, she says, the light of the cross is reflected. So it is throughout. It, it, in other words, it's not that the cross just stays over here, but there's something about the light of the cross and what took place, the blood that is in the outer court, that's in the holy place, that's in the most holy place, that according to Revelation 12 enables us to overcome through that wonderful life of Jesus being lived out within us. We have nothing to fear as long as we abide in him and forget not the way God has led us and, of course, our past history. We would have nothing to fear. So how does that happen with no time left? promises and some people look at it on the flip side every coin has two sides mm -hmm. I don't care how small the coin is it has two sides uh, and so when you look at the quotation in early writing 67 it says we have it says that God will teach us in a few months what it has taken others years to learn mm -hmm. uh, some people will look at that and say oh it's scary because how we're going to do this we only have a few months but that's a promise and the promise is that it may have taken men years to do what needs to be done and God's going to allow us to do that in a short amount of time that's wonderful and all we have to do, now, we, now I must admit, and I don't know where it has come from, but there is a thinking that persons who don't know Jesus don't have to be afraid of the crisis. Hmm. And the Bible doesn't teach that. No way. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, the Bible says fearfulness will surprise the hypocrite. And so if a man doesn't know Jesus, he should be afraid. Uh, there's no safety in ourselves. There's no safety in anything outside of Christ. But if a man has Jesus, a relationship with him, he has nothing to fear. Now, how is that going to happen? We've got to now give God our time. If we're willing to give Jesus our time, some people don't, they want to gain a relationship without time. They don't want to spend any time. They, they spend time in Facebook. They spend time on television. They spend time in tweeting. They spend time doing everything else. But when the one who loves us the most, a man that's friendly, must, a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And if we treated each other the way we treat God, we wouldn't have any friends. Uh, so let's just give God more time. If we give him time. Uh, there's nothing that he can't do within us. He can teach us very quickly. I read a statement that it says that God can do more in one moment for us if we let him than a person can do in their whole lifetime. So uh, that's a promise. I want to make sure. I want to make sure that we can answer as many questions as possible. So. So all right, very quickly, that same quotation, early writing 67. She says, "Said the angel, deny self, and it says ye must step fast." We know that we are to take steps to Christ, but you can take slow steps and you can take fast steps. So therefore, you must step fast. Delay not. Do not waste time. Continuous. 
Don't let it be sporadic and haphazard, but that time for prayer, that time for Bible study. Be consistent. Don't let it be sporadic and broken because that will slow the pace down, and eventually we won't keep pace with the light, and we might be left in darkness. So step fast, and you'll see that God will help us in a few months to grow in the experience of Jesus. Okay. 2520, what is it? How do we know if it's true or false? Twenty-five twenty. It's a. There's a prophecy. Twenty-five twenty. What is it? Where did the Where did this uh, prophecy come from? And how do we determine whether it's true or false? In the book of Leviticus, chapter twenty-six, there is a term that is used where God is telling Israel that if they did not of course, reform and do their acts correctly in obedience that God says he will allow them to go through punishment. And the term that is used in Leviticus 26 in several verses, verses 18, verse 33, verse 28, it says that God will allow them to be punished seven times. Now, it's interesting because the verse doesn't say seven times. The verse says seven times more. And for some reason, we always extract that word more. And, and we make it sound like it's a prophecy. Well, what happened is William Miller in history, as he was studying Leviticus chapter 26, he got to a point that he saw that statement of the seven times and he figured, well, times equals, you know, a period of time. So he took the day for year principle and he applied it to the seven times where it came up to 2,520 days. A day in prophecy represents years. So therefore, he believed that in 2,520 years, something was going to happen as it relates to Israel from a scattering gathering standpoint. Well, William Miller, eventually these recordings was put on a chart and as a result of it being on a chart and Ellen, Ellen White addressing the chart and speaking very favorably of the chart, there are individuals and movements today in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who believes that if a pastor, a minister, a ministry is not teaching the 2520 or 2,520-year prophecy supposedly found in Leviticus chapter 26, that they have apostatized from foundational and fundamental Adventism. And this movement has grown very large today, and therefore uh, there's major schisms and splits in God's church over this numeric calculation. Well, if individuals were to simply take the Bible, go to Leviticus 26, and read it, you would see that as you go through the verses, God is making statements of severity because he keeps saying seven times more. And then if you don't do this, then there'll be another punishment seven times more. And then if you don't do this, he says there'll be a punishment seven times more again. So God is making a statement of severity of punishment, which was fulfilled when the children of Israel were in captivity with Babylon. And Ellen White speaks about this in the book Prophets and Kings. And that is our only commentations on, or commentary on, Leviticus, the 26th chapter. Therefore, the pioneers, when they came together, they studied. They said, well, let's go ahead and let's look at, you know, many of the things we once believed. And it came together, and it was not just James White. I don't know why individuals believe that, but James uses the word we. He says we. We have studied. And he says we have seen that there is no prophecy in Leviticus, the 26th chapter. It was clearly harmonious because J.N. Lothborough made it clear. He said the longest time prophecy in the Bible, 2,300 days. Stephen Haskell, longest time period in the Bible, 2,300 days. And so on. All of the, you know, several of our pioneers. And one day somebody came, and I'll, I'll make this point on it. Somebody came and they said, well, Ellen White said that there was a mistake in the chart. 
And the mistake was not the 2520. The 2520 was on the 1850 chart, so therefore the 2520 must be true. And that was their summation of it. And I said to myself, I said, okay, that's interesting. So I was talking with a gentleman who was at one of our training schools, and I was invited there to speak, and he wanted to have a one-on-one audience with me. And he said, Brother Lemon, he says, if it's on the chart and Ellen White didn't correct it, then it must be true. I said, my brother, that is a faulty way to arrive at truth. And he said, well, show me why. I said, okay, let's do a comparative. Did Ellen White endorse the chart? He said, yes. I said, did Ellen White endorse the book Daniel and Revelation? And he said, yes. I said, all right, good. We're even so far. I said, all right. Was there a mistake on the chart? Yes. Was there a mistake in Daniel and Revelation? Yeah. Uriah Smith said the king of the north is Turkey, where Ellen White and the pioneers knew, many of them, they knew that the king of the north represented the papacy. So we're still even. Chart endorsement, book endorsement. Mistake on the chart, mistake in the book. I said, now, when the chart issue was corrected, you're saying because the 2520 was left on the chart that your assumption is Ellen White must endorse the 2520. And he said, yeah. I said, so then what do you do when Uriah Smith's book, Daniel and Revelation, on page 784, he wrote a whole chapter completely denying the 2520? And Ellen White still endorsed the book. Do you see what I'm saying? It's faulty reasoning. You, you can't use that reasoning. All it's going to do is snap right back at you. So the problem that is happening today is there are, there are foul methods that are being used in biblical interpretation, and it's leading to points of fanaticism where now we are taking this and making it present truth, where Early Writings, page 63, tells us very clearly that it is present truth what the flock needs now, and she defines it in the third paragraph by saying, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfect calculated to unite the flock, sanctify the, soul, uh, sanctify the soul, and show us our glorious future. And she says, these I have seen is what the messengers of God should dwell on. These are clear statements. I pray by the grace of God it will be clear to our minds so we don't allow ourselves to get caught up in these various realms of fanaticism. Thank you. I, I believe uh, clarification, he asked a question. I guess the moderator should a- answer that question. Uh, why, why do people say that James, it was just James White? I think that's because he wrote the article. He was the editor. He was, yeah. Another, another uh, number, 1888, there was a message called Righteousness by Faith. What, what, if any, is the difference between the message that was preached then and what the 1888 study committee calls Righteousness by Faith? We'll skip that question. I would ask who submitted the question. Well, what? I would ask who submitted that question. They might be willing to ask more what that question was. Well, then it wouldn't be anonymous. <laughs> it's all right. I don't think anybody was sincere. They may not okay. be afraid to answer the question, ask the question. So maybe if they want to ask later on, maybe they can get an okay. individual answer. Okay. Next question. Is it okay for a woman to be ordained? Why is there so much controversy about this? 
There's controversy because the people don't agree. Well, just one perspective, one aspect of it. I don't answer the whole question, but one aspect is this. Many of the theological you know, positions today, or a number of them, are impacted not by Bible study or theological discovery as a result of a prayer meeting, but they come out of theological writings of uh, non Seventh-day Adventist theologians, books, philosophers that appeal to, to uh, feminism, various things of that nature, and uh, uh, sometimes brought into the church not by way of deep spiritual commitment, hoping it will finish the work, but rather by a more political, uh, philosophical perspective. And so one danger would be that uh, that may be the case there. Uh, on the other hand, perhaps that's not acceptable to some who think that way. And uh, I personally have been somewhat neutral on it, having been the chair of the religion department in the Midwest, where many ladies come. Some make the distinction between women ministry, which is promoted and accepted, and and receives the full blessing of just about every committed Christian, as Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and yet some have the reserve regarding uh, position of leadership within the structure, and they make the distinction there. So church is <laughs> kind of in, really in a hard spot with that because they, in some areas, want to ordain the women but not call it ordination. And that seems to be some, to some people it seems to be somewhat less than totally genuine because if a man and a woman kneel together on the same platform in the same service to call one by one name, the other by another name, to me it seems to add confusion rather than to clear up some issues. And I'm sure it's done with good intentions because uh, we have two sides on the issue, trying to keep both sides happy. That will not always be possible as we face the future, and the pressure will come from the outside. We probably will have fewer issues like that as we get towards the time of the end. It's not a full answer, it's just a perspective. I believe that if we understood more of the foundational principles, we would not have so many problems. Uh, we, we live out where there are trees, and anybody knows where trees are, there are leaves. And when leaves fall on the tree, if a man goes out and picks up leaves, he's going to keep picking up leaves, and it's going to keep happening. And so I believe that just like a disease, uh, sickness and disease continue to come back, and if you mask it in one place, it's going to show up in another unless you cure the disease. And so dealing with women ordination is just a, is just a symptom. And so just dealing with it, fighting with it, talking about it, I believe that the Satan's plan has always been to divert us from present truth. And so if you can get there and you can be divided, Satan's plan is divide and conquer. And so we must understand there are battles that we have to fight, and we need to understand what are the battles on present truth that are significantly uh, tied into the work being finished right now, or we're wasting time. Jesus said there were many issues in Jesus' day, but Jesus didn't go down to Rome 
and start filing a complaint at the Roman official office at everything that took place. He said the axe must be laid to the root of the tree. And I believe that if we lay the axe to the root of the tree, then this problem will be solved. What's the root of the tree? We're told the home. In Adventist home, page 15, it says that the home is the heart of the community of the church. If a home knew the role of the home, if a husband knew what a husband was and a wife knew what a wife was and a child knew what a child was, then it wouldn't be a problem in the church. The problem is that our homes have been confused, and if we get back to the position of the home, there's a whole chapters in both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy, and it'll be very clear. And I believe the enemy is just trying to use these, his subtlety to create division and war instead of getting us about the job of finishing the work. You remember in the time of, of Christ, the Jewish nation were fighting about how many angels could stand upon the point of a needle. Can you repeat the question, Doug? I want to answer it, if possible, correctly, if possible. Is it okay for a woman to be ordained? I'd like us to turn to the word, and let's see if we can find the answer. But I'm just laying what Brother Davis says, the principle. Isaiah 3, verse 12. Three? Yes, Isaiah 3, verse 12. This chapter is a lot of admonition to the children of Israel and what would happen to them. And in verse 12, it's a, it's a very ha harsh admonition. It says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. And if we look in the New Testament, there is an order. Christ is the head of the church. And below Christ is men, and below men is women. And so, is women ordination biblical? Based on what I gave you, what do you believe? And what has the Holy Spirit led you to believe? I will say also that um, another, another way of looking at this issue that's happening within is the same way the Bible says in Matthew 24 about as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. And you'll, you'll know that... As it was in the days of Noah, there was a way the world was, there was a condition the world was in in Noah's day, and then there was a condition the church was in in Noah's day. And therefore, we see different dynamics. So it is that when the Bible says, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be the coming of Son of Man. There was a condition that the world was in, there's a condition that the church was in. When you look at the condition of the world, if you think about Lot, we typically think of Sodom, Sodomy, homosexuality, and this, that, and the other. Today, that is the buzzword of, of talk right now, the news and everything else from the president and what he feels about it, vice president, what they feel about it, and then, of course, the world at large. And there is a major push for the homosexual movement, homosexual lifestyle, and it being all right and okay and being approved and all these different things. It's a deception that has hit the world, that individuals now believe that husbands can marry other husbands, wives can marry wives, and the list goes on. But what is really the root issue of homosexuality and a lot of this homosexual behavior, especially when dealing with marriage? The root issue is an issue of gender confusion. It's a gender confusion. They don't understand that husband was to be with wife, wife to be with husband, and now there's all this gender confusion that's taking place in the world. So you have your worldly deception, and then you can have your last day deception that affects the church. The church is also going through a gender confusion crisis. 
So we see that as it was in the days of Lot, gender confusion in the world, there's gender confusion now taking place in the church. Individuals are trying to assume various roles. Women can be ordained. That's not the issue. Women are ordained to be mothers. Women have been ordained to be wives. Women have been ordained to be teachers and so on. But we find nowhere where women have been ordained to be elders or pastors in the Bible. You just don't see it. So therefore, I don't see what the issue is if we just stay faithful with the word, but we've allowed the worldly women's lib movement and all these other things to be the motivator behind a lot of this genre and all these arguments that we're doing. And we are being distracted from the issues of present truth right now. And if we can get back to these foundations and realize that we are manifesting the very spirit of the days of Lot with this issue of gender confusion and how it's affecting us as a people and causing tremendous confusion when God said to the church that I am not the author of confusion, but of peace. Our sisters are precious in the eyes of God, and they can be used in mighty, marvelous ways. God puts the mother who guides the children aright on a higher plane than the pastor who baptizes thousands. And if our sisters could learn the principles and the blessings of being in these various points and privileges of being mothers, being wives, and being teachers of God's word without having to assume the role of pastor or elder, we would find that we would find much more peace. Even Paul said, even things that supposedly we have a, a freedom to do, if it will cause brethren to stumble, let us not do it. So I pray that God will just get our minds above and beyond these distractions so we can really go forward and finish the work. Thank you. At youth conferences, there's always relationship questions. We touched on one before. When a, a man is selecting a woman, how far does equally yoked go? <laughs> I, I believe it goes as far as, as deep as it can go. <laughs> uh, the Bible is very clear in the book of Amos, uh, the book of Amos chapter 3, and in verses, and in verses 3, the Bible gives a very powerful admonition that is in connection with uh, Corinthians. And what it says in Amos 3, it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And so when we look at unequally yoke, there are phases, there are uh, parts of man. And see, what has happened is we, we have lost the plan that God has given us for relationships. God has given us a plan for courtship and marriage, and we have thrown that plan aside and have actually accepted the plan of the world. And it's amazing when you look at the batting average of the world, it's terrible. Uh, and if we follow the same plan the world follows, we're going to get the same results. So the unequally yoked means that there has to be a union, uh, an agreement between the persons, whether it's on the physical plane, the mental plane, the spiritual plane. When you read the spirit of prophecy, you see all those are dealt with an equally yoked. They say that some persons, that they, their age, should, there should not be a too great of a distance between the age. That's the disparaging the age for the most time. There should be an agreement there. And some places it talks about the physical development. It says that if one person is healthy and another person is not healthy, they should not be married together because the offspring would be affected in a different way. It talks about it on every plane spiritually, uh, that there should be a harmony and an agreement in each place. So what we have to do is go back and look at the agreement that God's plan has given us, and anything that disturbs that agreement is going to be trouble. I mean, think of it. If right now today you want if man was in Texas, and he wanted to fly to California, and another man wants to, or a woman wants to go to uh, Florida, could they get on the same plane? No. One plane is going that way, another plane is going that way. You'll end up in the wrong place. You'll be waiting in a long line and never get on any ride. 
and many homes are doing the same thing. They're in an unequally yoke in two different ways, and when the home is broken, they wonder what has happened. It's because it's been broken from the start. And so as we learn to agree on these principles, it can create unity on all of the different planes in which God has made man. Would, would someone mind being a little more specific? Because I'm not sure that this in the front row. Did you, everyone under, did you understand that or you want more specific? You're good? Okay, they're, okay. No, no, you can say. Just look at the verse. Um, again, the same way, you know, look at the verse. The Bible does not say unequally yoked. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And therefore, I have to define, well, what is an unbeliever? And when I begin to look at what an unbeliever is, it says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? So an unbeliever is someone who is, an, is not a righteous person or is practicing unrighteous living or lifestyle. So what you want to do is take your Bibles and find out what does the Bible call unrighteous? What does the Bible say is unrighteous or what is the opposite of righteousness? And this is how you'll be able to make your list. So that way you can say, okay, well, this is how deep it goes. You know, whatever the Bible calls an unrighteous act or a wicked act or an evil act or evil lifestyle, evil thinking, whatever it may be. And then when you have that list of this is what righteousness is, this is what unrighteousness is, now I can know that these are the things that we have to agree on as stated if we're going to walk together. And God will he'll make it so plain to you. So I would say take those verses, look at Second Corinthians chapter six. That's where it comes from. And just go ahead and start looking. Well, what is unrighteousness? What is righteousness? And then see, okay, these are the opposites. And whoever I walk with, if I'm living the righteous, they must be in this line as well. And I believe it's gonna help put your checklist to know, well, how far does it go and to what point can I say all right, I can be with this person even though there's differences. God doesn't expect us to have the same mind. I'd be in torment if my wife was like me. I guarantee you. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? But I'm thankful that though she is different from me, we are in harmony. My wife and I, we will be at difference on what color we should paint the room, but we will not be at difference when it comes to how should we raise our children. You get what I'm saying? So we're, we're in agreement on the principles of righteousness as it should be in the home while at the same time, we're still very different from each other, and yet we can still have harmony with each other in the midst of our differences. I think and part of the question probably uh, unspoken implies how about a Christian in another denomination who loves the Lord, who studies the Bible, who goes to church, and who believes in Jesus as Savior. Pick the finest person you can find. Ellen White makes a comment, I think it's a message to young people, where she says, he may ever be such a wonderful Christian if he has not accepted the message for today, you are unequally yoked. And so it, takes, it goes a step further. And by us taking that stand, we're not rejecting other Christians. See, that's immediately the comeback. Oh, you're kind of narrow-minded. You think you're the only ones who are going to be saved. It's not a salvation issue so far as the individual is concerned. It's an issue of sharing the same mission, vision, and commitment to the message God has entrusted this people at this time in preparation for the second coming. Thank you. In light of the Omega apostasy uh, by some of our leaders, what should we do as members? How should we alert our co-members, friends, and family about what is going on? 
we don't want we don't want our members to lose trust in our leaders. I'm concerned about uh, something that was stated in there. We don't want our members to lose trust in our leaders. Now, the heart of the individual writing that may be at a different place than what those words are saying. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, Cursed be the man that puts his trust in man and maketh flesh his arm. I don't know if my mission is to teach the people to put their trust in their leaders. You understand what I'm saying? We are to respect our leaders. We are to love our leaders. And even when we disagree with them, we can disagree in a very Christ-like manner and in the spirit of tact. Steps to Christ, page 12, tells us that Jesus was always tactful. Jesus was one that if he found himself having to rebuke, thank the Lord it says that he did it with tears in his voice. So uh, I cannot agree that we should teach them to put their trust in our leaders. I don't want anybody to trust me. I don't, you know, so it's, it's like I'm concerned with that statement. Again, their heart may be in a different place when they wrote it, but the statement, it just says what it says, so I'm addressing that statement. God has not called us to put our trust in leadership, but that we can definitely respect them, love them, pray for them, encourage them, and at times even show our love to them by giving them rebuke if necessary, but to remember to do it with tact and to do it in the spirit of love and Christ tell the truth in love. So when we see the omega of apostasy having its way within our church, we definitely should call sin by its right name. Jesus does a comparison in John chapter 10 where he talks about the shepherd and the hireling. And he says the hireling is one who sees the sheep about to be scattered and he just leaves. And, and you know, he just lets the sheep get scattered. And he says the hireling does that because he doesn't love, the doesn't love the sheep. But the shepherd loves the sheep enough that he's willing to even lose his life so that the sheep would be saved. And therefore, I believe that if you see the actions of the Omega of apostasy, we are told in inspiration with pen and with voice, we are to go ahead and protest and lift up the uh, issues and to address it accordingly with the right, appropriate people. You know, Matthew 18, we have a plan there. So, you know, we follow those plans on how to address these issues. But at the end of the day, Jeremiah 17, 5, cursed be the man that puts his trust in man and maketh flesh his arm. But verse 7 says, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. So put your trust in Jesus. Respect, love, encourage your leaders as much as you can. If you see them going in the wrong path, love them enough to tell them the truth and to let them know that I believe we're going in the wrong path here. And by the grace of God, we need to get into a better path. And anytime you find that there's stubbornness and all these things, this, this new form of idolatry, then what we should do is say, as jo uh, uh, Joshua said, as for me and my house, you know, if, if, if you're choosing to go in this direction, then as for me and my house, we must serve the Lord. We cannot follow in this direction for this is not the direction the Lord is leading. I'll leave it there and leave some comments for some others if they want to comment. Uh, just two quick points. The first is I think that there needs to be a distinguishing that there's not just one type of a leader. Uh, there are two types of leaders, and Jesus made it very clear, and I believe that the answer to every problem uh, can best be seen in following the footsteps of Jesus. In Matthew 15, verse 14, it says, uh, verse 13 says, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father have not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. And then he goes on to say, They be blind leaders of the blind, 
And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So what we see here very clearly is that God makes a distinction, distinction between leaders that can see and leaders that are blind. The leader that can see, it's safe to be able to follow. The, the apostle said, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. But here, the warning that Jesus gave us was not toward all leadership. The warning that he gave us was to make sure that we're not following behind principles and counsels that are coming from blind leaders. Now, what was the result of following the blind leader? What does the Bible say? It says that if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a... Now, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what a ditch is? I mean, isn't that, isn't that interesting? I mean, you, you, we, we read it sometimes, but don't think of it. The only book that Jesus had and when he talked about this was the Old Testament. Uh, from Genesis to Malachi, and Jesus read the scripture. Everything he said was based on the word of God. Go to Proverbs real quick, and let's see what a ditch is. Because when he said the blind lead the blind, and both shall fall into a ditch, was that literal blindness or spiritual blindness? Of course, that was spiritual blindness. So when he talked about a ditch in Proverbs 23, would that be a literal ditch or a spiritual ditch? If it was a spiritual blindness, then it would be a spiritual ditch. So what is a ditch according to the Bible? Well, the Bible explains itself in Proverbs 23, Beginning in verses 27, it says, For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. So the Bible says that a whore is a ditch. So when the Bible says the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch, what is a ditch? The Bible says it's a whore. Do we know of any whores in Revelation? What is the whore? The false churches. So if we follow the counsel of blind leadership, it will take us outside of the true church into an ecumenical spirit with Babylon, into the whore of Revelation. And so as we listen to what Jesus is saying, he's saying, be careful not to follow blind leaders. Well, how do I know the difference? Because in Laodicea, we're in trouble. Everybody's blind, both the leader and the laity. We're blind, all of us. So there's a problem with this. The Bible says that they that lead thee cause thee the earth. We must study everything from the word of God. You can't listen to what the minister say, what the evangelist says, what the person. You must take everything and line it up to the word of God, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. What do we do? The Bible says in Ezekiel 9, 4, we are to sigh and cry. What does that mean? Number one, sigh is our attitude. We should not be happy about what we see. It should really tear up our hearts. It should make us sorrowful. And to cry, first, it means not just preaching. We, we ought to lift up our voice and preach against it. Isaiah 58 says that we're to preach and about it, but we're told in both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy that crying, more especially, is talking about our prayers. In Psalms it says, evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. Psalms 55, 17. So what that tells us is that when we see apostasy, first, we should allow God to to give us a heart where we hate it. Second, we should begin praying, especially for wherever we see it, in ourselves, because the problem of the Omega is not just with the leaders. And somebody, it looked like the question was saying the leaders, we are all in that apostasy right now, and God wants to take us out. And as we begin to pray on it, and then as God opens up opportunities, whatever is in the heart will come out, and we would speak against it to bring people back to Jesus. And if we do that, wherever we are, in our hearts, in our home, and in the churches that we belong, God promises that he would help us around us and he will cause the seal of God to be placed upon our foreheads. Amen. Uh, I would just like to say today in the day in which we live, uh, to be a leader is an awesome thing. Uh, we have a new general conference president. We have a new American, North American president. He's one of my classmates, actually from Canadian Union, and uh, I would just like to say a word 
in favor of supporting our leaders. Uh, in this matter of spiritual gifts, it's said over and over again that we have different gifts and sometimes we criticize each other for having different gifts because this man's method of labor is not quite like mine, gives me no right to criticize. And I find that a critical spirit, there are some people, when I was pastoring, they just enjoyed lamenting. I, I could never go there without them just singing me a song of Jeremiah, just lamenting and lamenting. He kind of got a strange feeling of holiness when he did that. Like there was really some great virtue in doing this because he could see the faults of everybody. I think along with, with not putting a trust for salvation and those kinds of things in our leaders because it's only in Christ, yet when it comes to the work, when they're trying to have us teach the Sabbath school lesson better, when they have us try to uh, uh, preach ref Reformation revival, I find people criticizing that. Some important people that I respect criticizing. So I tell them, please pray for those people. Don't just criticize them. They need your support so far as they're doing right. And uh, our leaders, I think especially in, in the spiritual leadership, many of them are wonderful people. And I think a critical spirit will destroy us and will make us blind and keep us down in the dumps. We need to be optimistic, positive. God's in charge. God will rule. And, you know, going along with what Jeremiah said, I think that's fully, I agree with that, fully what he said, that our trust for salvation, our trust for the overall uh, progress of the work is not in their hands. It's in God's hands. But what I, my little speech here is that I want to support our leaders and not be critical about them in every little thing, but they may do things differently. When I see some spiritual diversion, it troubles me big time. I start praying for them because some of them, if I spoke to them, would just remove me from my place, you know, so to speak. So we ask the Lord to give us wisdom and to count the cost, whatever may be involved, and be courageous and true and let our influence be felt. But my little speech is, let us not get into this critical mode and be hypersensitive to differences. But uh, let us recognize the spiritual dangers and then be very positive, trustful, and a lot of time in prayer for these people who may need special help from the Lord. I'd like to add to what um, Brother Lemon, Brother Davis, and Brother Ereski says, if we look at an example of the life of King Saul and David, that is a very good example in which King Saul brought the people into apostasy. And David, however, I like what he said in 1 Samuel 26, verse 23, I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Our leaders are anointed by God. We are to pray for them as we And when we do see apostasy, we do rebuke. We call sin by its name, but we are not to stretch forth our hand against our leaders. And with that, we'll have a closing prayer. Father, I thank you that you've given us answers. I thank you that you've given us methods to study um, and understand your word. I pray that the questions that were not addressed uh, during this session would uh, would be addressed, uh, whether here at this conference or uh, through personal study. But I pray, please give us a desire to study. Please give us a desire to pray so that we can have a desire to study and even understand what we're reading and studying. 
and we need you and we love you. I ask this in your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.